The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There are autonomous and AI-enabled systems being developed. There's a lot of autonomous vehicles, a lot of drones that are increasingly capable that are able to fly or accompany and collaborate with human pilots, things like that. And there are, you know, AI tools that are being used in sensing, in ISR, in targeting, and across a variety of spectrums. But I think it's important to, again, talk about these systems more in the context in which they're being used because they are so widely varied. And again, these systems might not be military systems themselves, but they might be commercial and they might be translated into a military kind of context or application. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 1st, 2024. Following Hamas's attacks on October 7th, the Israeli military retaliated with a relentless and devastating air war. By mid-December, Israeli forces had struck more than 22,000 targets in Gaza, and the Israeli military said it had used artificial intelligence to select many of them. The targeting system, called the Gospel by the IDF, was not the first time a military used AI on the battlefield, but the high number of civilian casualties raised red flags for many. I sat down with Lauren Kahn, a senior research analyst at Georgetown's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, who focuses on the national security applications of artificial intelligence. We discussed how autonomous and AI-enabled weapons are being used and will be used in war, the current ground rules for the age of AI in warfare, and why Lauren favors confidence-building measures and other incremental steps rather than an all-out ban. And despite running through a few nightmare scenarios, I learned why Lauren remains hopeful for the responsible and ethical use of AI for defense. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 1st, governing the use of autonomous weapons and AI in warfare with Lauren Kahn. So Lauren, I want to start with a few definitions. What exactly counts as an autonomous weapon? And then similarly, what counts as an AI-enabled weapon or system? And I ask because I imagine if I'm a weapons contractor these days, I'm seeing the, the, you know, the buzziness of artificial intelligence. I'll probably just try to slap on an AI label to whatever I'm selling, what exactly counts or falls into these categories? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a great question. And unfortunately, one that is not easy to answer, even from someone from my perspective, because 
based on where you go, the definitions are going to vary. They're going to vary from something that's very legal or technical sense necessarily to something that actually gets closer to what you what you mean or what you think of when you think of an autonomous weapon. So I'd say from the U.S. Department of Defense perspective, the definitions are very clearly, well, I wouldn't say very clearly, but they're laid out in Directive 3000.09, which governs the United States policy towards autonomous and semi-autonomous weapon systems. So that has the U.S. definition in there. For all intents and purposes, though, for this kind of conversation, an autonomous weapon system refers to, I think, anything that has some kind of autonomous capability. Either it can fly by itself, it can drive by itself, or it might mean that the autonomous capability is somewhere in its targeting and engagement system. Usually when you hear debates about autonomous weapon systems or even lethal autonomous weapon systems, usually what they mean is the targeting and choosing to engage a target autonomously, even though you can have an autonomous system that just drives by itself. But again, there's someone human there making you know the decision to, to engage a target. And so there is this variation um, and that's not clear necessarily when you're reading things, but that's usually the sorts of kinds of systems that people are speaking about. And so when you broaden the definition that way, you have lots of different capabilities, again, to your point that could fit into this, especially when you get now this AI buzzword that a lot of marketing um, and a lot of companies are kind of slapping onto things um, for various reasons. I think a really interesting example here is there was a case uh, a while back, for example, of a Turkish uh, system that had been claimed to use AI, I think, in some capacity for targeting. And of course, then it was used in a conflict and NPR had reported on this. I'll have to find the details at some point. But NPR had had reported on this and said, you know, the first AI-enabled weapon is being used in combat, and uh, there was a bit of fallout over it. And so then the company went back and changed the marketing materials to remove all mentions of AI. So if you look at the in the Wayback Machine or our Internet Archive, you see this description of the system is varying, right? And so even after the fact, it's is it AI? Is it not? Is a very valid question and one that's going to be really challenging moving forward, especially as states start to adopt these systems and they want to signal to other adversaries that they're using these systems. And how do you kind of do that when AI isn't necessarily something you can physically see or you can't necessarily spray paint is AI on the side of a, of a drone or something, right? Um, so it's going to be increasingly challenging. Yeah, that's a really helpful place to start, especially this distinction uh, also between AI enabled and, and autonomous. Yeah. Uh, and these definitions are a great place to start, as you said, because especially when we begin to talk about governance, which we'll get into uh, later in the conversation, I was reading that you know if, if a definition is is too if is too broad, uh, you could even consider an old landmine as fully autonomous if someone steps on it because there was no, I guess, yeah. human operator pulling the trigger. Exactly. And then speaking of you know sort of this this old military technology that we're we're familiar with. I want to also get a lay of the land of, of what is currently being developed and in use. You mentioned this one example, this Turkish example. Uh, I think when, when a lot of these conversations come up, there's a lot of sort of doom scenarios, nightmare scenarios, yeah. some of which may be closer than we realize, some of which may be a lot you know, further away. So you know, in your experience as someone who studies this every day, how close are we to some of these nightmare scenarios? You know, what are they? And, and what is actually the reality today in terms of autonomous or, or AI-enabled weapons? Absolutely. I mean, I'm so glad that you honestly started with definitions. It sounds really boring, but I think you have this 180 degree problem when it comes to AI, where everyone kind of slightly understands what it means, but the goalposts tend to move as you develop these capabilities, right? We have Siri, we no longer think Siri is AI, we have ChatGPT, and now people, as soon as they 
become familiar with it or our understanding that maybe it's not actually AI. I think the case is similar here. I mean, if you're talking about autonomous uh, systems, weapon systems, for example, or lethal autonomous weapon systems have been used. I heard this great analogy about we already have those from a technical capacity. It's not very challenging to make from a, again, a scientific standpoint, right? There's been years of reports about, you know, little robotic systems that are able to detect and target invasive species, for example, you know, you have invasive almonds and they're able to shoot that down, or you have cases of it being used, you know, robotic systems in the Great Barrier Reef to inject invasive starfish with saline, right? That's a lethal autonomous weapon system, arguably, but not, again, not for humans, not for militaries in that kind of context. So the actual technology is there. It's developed. It's a matter of, are we going to integrate this into broader systems? And it becomes a question of, you know, bureaucracy, legal and governance and ethical implications as well, which I think as a society, I think we've decided and acknowledged that that's maybe not the wisest way to go at this point in time, right? There's this debate about accuracy and about, you know, how much better it is compared to current systems, about how much better it is to humans. And this broader debate about safety, right? The idea and the promise of AI systems is that, you know, they reduce the likelihood of human error and hopefully make things more safe, ultimately speaking, which seems a little ironic to talk about in this context. But that's ideally the thought, right? That's why you had the development of precision guided munitions and the evolution of precision strike, right? You're able to reduce collateral damage and things like that with things that are more precise. That is, in theory, the promise of these kinds of systems, right, which are in the realm of possibility. What gets to the kind of trade-offs that you're speaking to a little bit are, you know, is it better than current systems? Is it safe? Are we acknowledging all the possible risks and are we adopting it safely, right? And so this gets into the broader conversations of interoperability and how things work with other systems of systems. And if we can't visualize how these systems work so easily, or if we want to make sure that we're testing them robustly and make sure we're evaluating them appropriately, what does that look like? And do we need to develop new frameworks for AI, which I think the conversation has found out that yes, there is something about AI that makes it a little bit more challenging. It's uniquely challenging when it comes to developing these sorts of systems, because it's not just an application, it's a general purpose kind of enabling technology, right, that you might again, that's being used in this kind of marketing way to like slap on an AI label to things, but it's more like the combustion engine or the internet where you don't regulate, you know, electricity or the combustion combustion engine or the internet, but how they're used in context. So I think that's how we're going to move forward. So these systems are being developed, but again, it's hard to tease them out because they're being integrated into existing systems of systems. But to go back to your original point, there are autonomous and AI enabled systems being developed. There's a lot of autonomous vehicles, a lot of drones that are increasingly capable that are able to fly or accompany and collaborate with human pilots, things like that. And there are, you know, AI tools that are being used in sensing, in ISR, in targeting and across a variety of spectrums. But I think it's important to, again, talk about these systems more in the context in which they're being used because they are so widely varied. And again, these systems might not be military systems themselves, but they might be commercial and they might be translated into a military kind of context or application. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And I think this is a good place to transition to some of the governance structures that are in place, laws, treaties that are in development or, or already in place. You know, given what we've been talking about so far, that AI should be more analogized, as you said, to, a, a, you know, an, an enabling technology like the, the combustion, combustion engine that raises, as you said, unique challenges for regulating AI. 
And then you layer on top of the, the definitional question that we started with of, of, you know, broad definitions, narrow definitions. So what are current frameworks for regulating the use of AI in defense or in the military? You know, again, what is, what is the lay of the land right now, both here in the U.S. and then and globally? And again, I know that's a, a big question, so feel free to, to break it up how, how you choose. Absolutely. I guess from a general perspective, there are a lot of different approaches that you can take when it comes to artificial intelligence in general, because it does fit in this kind of amorphous capability. There are, I think, you know, risk kind of centric approaches that look to break up the specific applications or use cases based on risk level or assessment. That is kind of like the EU AI Act that you see where they're saying, okay, here are cases that are high risk, right? You have weapon systems, you have privacy concerns, and that's how they govern it. There are other kind of approaches that I think the U.S. is more so taking, which is, again, an application or sector-specific approach, which is looking at what are the AI tools being developed and how would they differently impact the sectors that they are applied within? And so, and then therefore, what are the agencies responsible for those? For example, I think like aviation is a great example here. They've been using automation for decades, right? Since basically the creation of the airplane, we've had some variation of autopilot. And so that's not unfamiliar to them, whether it's AI or not, the FAA and different other international sort of governance agencies have the ability and already have the responsibility to both regulate and implement the regulations on any kind of onboard systems or how air traffic control works, etc. And so whether it's AI or not, was still falls within that purview, right? I always like to emphasize, you know, AI is seen as this kind of silver bullet, but it's mostly, it's still ultimately a tool that will be wielded by and for humans. And so the the ends and the goals aren't changing. It's just the means to get there. And so there shouldn't be a reason why the FAA wouldn't be poised to regulate this, for example, in aviation. Now, there might be unique challenges that are widespread, not specific to aviation, for example, if AI is implemented in that kind of sphere, um, that I think are broad and cross-cutting things like talent deficit. And what do you do when you don't have necessarily the expertise to test and evaluate these systems, and you might need to delegate that to someone else? That kind of raises governance challenge as well. So there are these like two kind of based frameworks. That's one that's trying to be more general and one that's trying to be more context dependent. And I think they're both needed and they're both necessary. I, But I, at the same time, I think it's really hard when you have a technology that's moving so, so rapidly and that's so enabling and so wide ranging to make it you know risk-based because those risks might change and they're changing by the day especially as these systems change and become increasingly capable or we're aware increasingly of their limitations and so i think having ai-based experts and having ai-tailored policies within the broader framework right i think is going to be important and then only then we'll be able to like kind of extrapolate and learn the lessons that we need more broadly to apply which unfortunately might come after you know some incident happens i hope not but that's traditionally how these things have have gone and so i expect that will be the case in the future Mm. No, I'm glad you laid out those two approaches because before this conversation, I was I was speaking with a colleague, Eugenia Lustry, who's our, our fellow in in tech and law here at Lawfare, and and she was curious about you know sort of tech agnostic or tech neutral regulations. 
you know, how can we make the most out of regulations or law that, that already exists that could address this? Because as you mentioned, a lot of these technologies have been around for a while and they're, they're used for, for different purposes. We were talking about the example of deep fakes, but I think this can also yeah. apply for, for weapon systems. I mean, I mean, international law already prohibits all kinds of uses of, of exactly. weapons, I think, technology. I want to touch on, though, before we move on to some the, the political declaration and, and other frameworks on the debate around outright bans. So, you know, outright bans on on AI-enabled weapons or the use of AI in nuclear weapons, for example. Can you give the listeners a sense of where that debate stands and and why, you know, you may push back or the U.S. may push back on, on outright bans in certain aspects? Yeah, absolutely. I think those debates are really important. I think that they've been really key in bringing some concerns and risks and and the discussion of very real concerns to the forefront. At the same time, I'm personally skeptical of bans just because those countries that want to develop these sorts of systems will or, you know, might not subscribe to a ban for other reasons, right? It's a very high ask. It's a very high burden of proof, I think, for countries. And I'm very much of the opinion that a lot of these technologies, again, because it's an enabling system, like that's all well and good for very specific and very dangerous use cases, right? And has it? Ha- it's worked in the past with arms control. We've seen it with chemical weapons conventions, et cetera. But we have seen also, again, circumvention of their use, right? It's not a perfect solution. Um, I'm not an arms control expert, but it's increasingly complicated, again, when you get to these technologies that are dual use or multi-use, right? You have, again, these systems that are used, for example, in Ukraine, a lot of them are not necessarily military you know, military specific. They're commercial sector technologies that are being taken, they're being adopted by militaries and then being used. And so that brings a range of challenges, right? It's less identifiable, it's less discreet. There's great research on this that just came out called Dual Use Deception by Dr. Jane Bainman and Tristan Volk on this and about how the unique challenges of certain commercial sector and dual use technologies when it comes to arms control. It's really fascinating. I highly recommend it. But there are these these problems where it's ubiquitous, right? And it's not easy to put parameters and see where the use case lies with AI, right? It can be anything from a large language model, right, to a very specific, you know, this system that I've created has AI on it in some capacity, right? And so when you get to that, it makes it harder to see and it makes, again, verification and bans a little bit tricky, At the same time, I think a lot of the risks from artificial intelligence are actually from the human side, ironically enough, or from the human machine teaming side about how these systems interact with one another um, and how they interact with people and how humans rely on them. I mean, if you look at, for example, Tesla, a lot of the conversations are, you know, we're banning, you know, the autopilot or removing the software, but it's not because of the software is flawed itself, right? There are flaws in the system, but it's about the humans not monitoring the systems appropriately. Same thing when you get into a lot of like, I've been in the weeds on a aviation accidents recently with, you know, um, flight control systems and onboard systems, a lot of the issues you see there, automation has really made flight way more safe over the last few decades, right? But a lot of the issues that you see come in from most of them now because of the human pilot interacting or misreading a signal or not interacting appropriately. So it's this dynamic that's really challenging. And so a ban doesn't necessarily help prevent that because it just prevents one specific discrete type of technology. It doesn't get at this broader issue of some of these risks that might evolve from, from these technologies and from their use. And so I think different kind of almost, it sounds almost trite or moot, but like these common sense 
approaches, like you have to have certain levels of testing, you have to have certain levels of training, I think are really going to go a long way and are a very reasonable approach. I've considered them, a lot of folks have written on this um, and considered the approach for confidence building measures. So a lot of these approaches that are just, you know, they don't need to be formal treaties, but again, common rules of the road that make sense that are, you know, basically similar to kind of historic approaches during that emerged during the Cold War, even at the height of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union about some agreement to reduce tensions, right? You know, like, don't create simulations of attacks on our ships and things like that, that seem really common and seem really, you know, obvious, but really work to reduce tensions and to reduce the likelihood of accidents and inadvertent escalation and unintentional conflict, where I think a lot of the risk really resides when you come into integrating AI, at least in the military sense, for these specific kind of systems and systems of systems. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. 
Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I'd love to dig in on some of those confidence-building measures, especially uh, I really liked the, um, the Treaty of Sea incidents. And I, as a way of, of setting that up, I wanted to also just note that, you know, the fact that some of our listeners may already be familiar, but there are certain pieces of legislation or executive orders, especially here in the U.S., there was a, an executive order that the Biden administration published on AI that actually, you know, carves out exceptions for the use of AI in the military, which I think, you know, maybe at first blush wouldn't inspire much confidence in, in adversaries that there that there is this exception. But at the same time, the U.S. is doing things that, that could be considered confidence-building measures. So all that is to say, yeah, I want to drill down on, on some of those, and, and then especially that historical analogy that you, that you just hinted at. The U.S. has been historically very transparent about this. Um, again, when it comes to Directive 3000.09 was one of the first key pieces of legislation that tackled this. Historically, I am very optimistic when it comes to governing systems from a military perspective, despite indications that one, you know, that it's being carved out, et cetera, et cetera, because it's happening within the Department of Defense, which has a lot of control over how these systems can be governed. It has a lot of levers to pull. It has training. It has bureaucracies. It has an entire testing regime. It has all of these processes that need to happen. And actually, there's a there's a risk and there's a debate kind of ongoing about the United States either moving too quickly or moving too slowly when it comes to AI adoption. And and it's a it's not a very simple debate. Some people might be worried, oh, they're developing, you know, these these crazy systems because they see some project that's being outlined that says, you know, AI is capable of X, Y, and Z, but those are really early development research projects. And it will be a long time before those become an actual capability. There's a lot, a huge acquisitions progress of the world's largest bureaucracy that it has to churn through basically become, before it becomes a system. So there's a lot of different places, I think, actually, where the commercial sector can learn from the military when it comes to governing these technologies, right? For example, I think one of the most simple examples um, 
you know, for any kind of soldier that needs to like man a system or, you know, learn to use a certain kind of weapon or a rifle, et cetera, they have to go through training and go through certification and go through different processes and steps to make sure that they can prove that they know how to use that system responsibly, that they know how to operate it. They know what, where the chain of command lies, right. When things go wrong or when, you know, they're given orders. And so there's a very clear sense of who's in charge of what, when it comes to, when it comes to developing these sorts of systems. And to me, it makes sense that AI would be no different. There might need to be additional precautions or additional considerations, especially when it comes to, testing, evaluation, verification, validation, or TEVV, as we call it, just because, again, these systems are not necessarily inherently explainable to the human. If you like see an output of an algorithm, it's not necessarily clear why or how it made that decision. So there might need to be extra precautions. But these systems do exist, and they do exist in the United States. And so while you have these carve-outs that are happening in things like the executive order, I'm really, again, encouraged based on how the U.S. government and the U.S. Department of Defense in particular has kind of supplemented that with their own internal internal regulations, commitments, declarations, statements from the deputy defense secretaries and things like that, that have reaffirmed their commitment to, you know, responsible artificial intelligence, ethical, responsible intelligence, um, their data strategies. If you look at all of the offices that are coming out now, you can, if you go to their websites, you see any number of things. You see the re- responsible AI implementation pathway and you see TEVV guidance and you see the new replicator program and all of these other kinds of efforts that are kind of coalescing and that are working together and are being very transparent as well. These are all being made public to foster a kind of multifaceted approach, which I think is, I think is correct. Um, You want all of these different elements and pieces working together because it is such a broad ranging technology, which I think works better than necessarily something that's top down or is widespread. Though I am excited to see what comes out of the, the kind of carved out national memorandum on AI. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. I think, especially for international relations nerds to sort of see the formation of of norms, or at least the attempt to form norms, yeah. you know, happening in real time with some of these things like the political declaration, and, and then also um, the other initiative you just mentioned. So, I do want to I do want to dig into the political declaration because I think it's probably one of the best documents that lays out the the Defense Department or the U.S.'s vision for the responsible use of AI. Um, so, if you could just give a, a, a you know quick history of of how the political declaration came to be where it stands now, you know, what principles it, it lays out. You don't have to go into all of them. I know there are you know, 10 to 12 or something at this point. But um, yeah, just sort of an overview of the, of the declaration. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. This is something that I've been really, really optimistic about. I've been, the cheer, I've been a very clear cheerleader of the political declaration, just because I think, it, again, to your point, it's a very clear first step in this creation of international norms. I think there's been a lot of efforts internationally to sort of get at this problem. But this is a very clear outlining of statements that I think what's really important is that they're tractable, they're widely applicable, and they're not specific to lethal autonomous weapon systems. So they're broad ranging, right? I think, you know, to our point earlier in our discussion of AI, as, as we started this, it's really broad. It's not just the weapon systems, it's things as boring from predictive maintenance and hiring and, you know, systems that you use from payroll to exact systems that you might have on board a drone or a capability or something like that. 
And so you want to make sure that you're not forgetting those because as they feed into each other, they can create cascading failures, they can create risks and not to be, you know, a doomsayer about all these really boring mundane risks, but they can cause real harm. I mean, if you go to the AI incidents database, you see reports coming out daily of, you know, some local municipality or government used an AI algorithm to do something and it made a really stupid error and there wasn't a human to check it and it caused real harm or, you know, even the case more recently um, that's being covered um, you have in the in the United Kingdom with the post office scandal where a technology system said hundreds of post officers um, were embezzling money when really it was an accounting error and no one checked it for, for decades. You know, they refused to think the system was wrong. It results in very real harm, even these somewhat, you know, mundane or necessarily lethal applications of the technology, right? And so this kind of declaration makes sure to tries its best to get at all of that. And so it came about um, in February of 2023. It was first released. It was first announced at the Reaim Summit in the Netherlands by investor Bonnie Jenkins, who had announced that the United States was kind of going to put forward these principles and it was looking for feedback from other states and it was looking for sign-on from other states um, as it hoped to, again, approach ethical and responsible uses and safe responsible uses of artificial intelligence and autonomy in weapon systems, in military context, excuse me. And so in the few months since then, there was the initial, I think, 12 principles it was that had slight variation uh, of commitment to things, again, like I mentioned, testing and evaluation, making sure that human operators were were informed and aware of the limitations and risks, that they made sure to reduce unintended bias in systems or be aware of the bias in systems that might appear that they implement, right? And so these, again, are varied. They are cross-cutting issues that apply to any and all AI systems, right? And so from there, we got an update in November of, of 2023 as well um, at the AI Summit. I can't remember the name of it. I have all these AI terms in my head that was happening in the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris announced that the initial group of states had signed on to it. And that was really exciting because then they since then have also announced um, and released the updated version, which is, I think, a, ten, a tight 10 principles, again, very similar to the original set. There is one difference that I like to mention that seems to have gotten a lot of attention, which is there used to be a, a provision that acknowledged that humans would always be in control of nuclear weapons decisions. There would not be any AI involved. I'd like to caveat that I I think personally that this was removed due to, again, we want this this declaration, this kind of statement of principles to be relatable and relevant to all those who signed. And we want, and it needs to be, needs to be pertinent to any state, right? Because again, to, to the point earlier, all of these systems can be developed by any country. It's not just the high-end lethal autonomous weapon systems or weapon systems or, you know, targeting systems, but you can have AI across a range of, of use cases. And so it's a lot more accessible. It's a lot more likely to diffuse, especially with a technology that's so open source and again, so commercially backed that any kind of state can kind of really adopt AI. And so we want as wide ranging of, of a cohort of states to sign on to this as possible. Hopefully every state, um, but that's quite ambitious to sign on as possible. And so if you have the nuclear provision, it kind of works against that, right? Where you have states that are not nuclear armed states that this doesn't apply to. And why does this one kind of caveat not apply to them? I would love to see that then taken out and extrapolated and formalized in another kind of parallel effort. Again, to your point earlier about how the creation of norms happening, like one declaration does not constitute a norm. You need a bunch of actions. You need a bunch of statements. You need 
different sorts of ongoing dialogues to reinforce these. And it'll take time for these things to manifest and to create, right? You need them baked in it and as redundant as possible to make sure that they become robust um, and long lasting. But those are the, those are the kinds of, uh, topics and efforts that are that are in this declaration now. I'm really excited just personally that they also included automation bias, which I think is a really unique risk to artificial intelligence and especially how it interacts with human machine teams, right? The likelihood of humans to overly trust or overly delegate to machines, right? And just not catch those errors when they occur or to ironically increase the rate of errors, which is not what we want AI to do. And so those will be debated in the next, it, it seems in the first quarter of 2024, it was mentioned. I'm not sure when, but it seems like those states that have signed on to the declaration, there's about 50, 50-ish, uh, 50 plus now that have signed on to hopefully come together and talk about ways forward about actually implementing some of these things like testing and evaluation and sharing best practice, I think will be really important moving forward. So, as you said, you know, you you have been a champion uh, so far for the political declaration, and I think you laid out the case quite well. Uh, but at the same time, as you started to get into in the latter part of your answer, you know, you've been a bit a bit measured, I think, in in your championing. You've you've been a measured champion, if that's a fair <laughs> characterization. You know, I want to I want to build on what what you were just talking about on on what else needs to be done in terms of a more comprehensive framework, more consensus building. You know, what has been the global reception so far to the declaration, especially you know by region? For example, has the global South been interested in in, in joining on insofar as the global South acts together or doesn't? So, what else needs to be done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, measured um, champion is definitely correct. I'm excited and I promise, but now I'm like, what's next? What's next? Right. I, I'm always happy for more to be done. I, I, I think it would be unfair to put all the burden on this one declaration to do anything right. That would be like saying also 3000.09 is, is sort you know, it's fine in itself to have an additional legal review for, for autonomous weapons. systems. No, there needs to be all sorts of coordinated effort along these lines. And it doesn't say how these things should be implemented, right? Which I think is a very hard, tractable kind of engineering and technical problem as well. It's not just a policy problem, right? You're, if you're talking about how do we ensure that we reduce bias and algorithms, I think, you know, private companies are working on that now day in and day out, right? How do you kind of navigate that space between making sure that you get the answers and the responses that are helpful and ones that you want and ones that also aren't causing undue harm. And so I think that's not just, again, a policy question. It's all well and good to say, oh, we want to have unbiased algorithms, but how do you go about doing that? And how do you go about doing that in a way that's satisfactory? And how do you set those benchmarks? And so I think that is kind of the next layer of conversation that needs to happen. I think that we are very luckily, you know, there's quite a few, you know, responsible AI and ethical principles out there, both from individual companies, from large bodies, from states, et cetera, that have released their sort of strategies and, and views on this. I think what's next is to how do we, again, actually go about implementing that from a very technical and from a policy perspective when we can't necessarily address it with a technical response. I think it needs to come at, you know, a systems design level. It needs to come at a sort of human training and operator level and also somewhere in between where you're looking at what are the policies and organizational procedures that you can put in place to ensure that those two things work in tandem all together. And so I think 
I'm very curious to see what comes out of these sort of conversations and would love to see follow on sort of spinoff groups or guidance that are working on issues specific to these sorts of 10 principles that have been outlined. And I would love to see if there's some sort of public transparency or accountability or, you know, signposting that can be done that's saying, you know, we're sort of working on these issues and we're sort of looking for feedback or input. I think what NIST has done, for example, with the executive order and for, you know, calling in of consortium experts and and looking for additional information has been incredible and has been, you know, it remains to be seen what happens, right? We're in the early stages still, but I think it will be essential to moving forward because it's not just going to be an issue that is solved by policy alone. It's going to require efforts from academia. It's going to re- require efforts from civil society. It's going to require also from private sector companies, those that are developing these technologies as well. And so it's going to require this varied input that I think is no mean feat at all on a variety of topics. And I think I think that will be the key moving forward. And I think it's really hard, which is why it might not have happened exactly yet. But I think that I'm very positive about all of these efforts moving in the right direction, again, to reinforce that. And I want to go back and make sure we touch on a specific example or specific suggestion, I think, that you put forth in your foreign affairs piece last year of the autonomous incidents agreement, whether that would look similar to a bilateral agreement like the U.S.-Soviet incidents at sea agreement or, you know, more more multilateral approach. Um, so I just wanted to open the floor t- to that specific suggestion because I think it was an interesting one rooted in, you know, successful cases of history. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, happy to get into the the Soviet incidents agreement is one of the cases of the most successful confidence building measures. It's really short. If you go on and look it up, it's not more than like half an internet page. And it's it, it basically just, it came at the height of the of, of the Cold War, It came, you know, when there were a lot of like naval operations that were happening that were causing, you know, increasing tensions and increasing escalation, right? An increasing rate of drive-bys and and clashes between U.S. and Soviet kind of uh, naval forces. And so out of a common sense, they were saying, okay, let's, let's sit down and think about some ways that make sure that basically like when we do go to war, that it's on purpose, right? Which seems like a very kind of again, silly kind of statement to make, but it's really important. States are going to go to war if they want to go to war, but you want to avoid any kind of accidents or any kinds of escalatory behavior that states kind of feel trapped in that 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 was not desired. And I think that AI in particular can kind of exacerbate that depending on where it's introduced. Just because it is such a black box system, it is a little amorphous, it is a little hard to see. And so, so this system really worked really well because it was based on, again, established kind of protocol from the commercial sector from you know commercial freedom like of the seas and and navigation and regulations that had just been out there about you know when to fly your flag and and different kind of signaling procedures that had been established then and so i think something similar could work with ai which again is very hard to see when something is ai or not right it's going to be incredibly hard to i think identify if something is ai or not again if you're not if most of what relying on is marketing materials it turns out to be um just anecdotally and so especially it's going to be hard not only to identify that but also then to convey it truthfully right if you how can you prove that an output that was generated by an ai algorithm or or a large language model it's like you can't really dig back in you can dig into the training data you can see kind of what it was output but like how it got to what it got to is not necessarily clear right famously so 
And so you can't really measure those inputs and you're going to not be able to measure those inputs if you have an AI enabled autonomous system, right? Or something like you have an autonomous system, but it's some AI capability somewhere, either in its flight or its targeting, right? And so you can only measure its behavior, how it interacts. And so I think that that is a possible way forward. It's a a kind of band-aid until we get kind of to the technical expertise. Something might pop up that solves this problem. I hope it does. But until then, I think, Looking at other ways around it, I think, and breaking off small bits and pieces is a very reasonable way to go. So that was kind of the inspiration behind that piece and behind a potential autonomous incidence agreement, right? You can't govern how these systems operate or look or, you know, how can you demonstrate it, but you can address how you respond if a certain action is taken. And so that was, again, that, that was the inspiration behind that piece. Um, I, it could be multilateral. It could be bilateral. It could be unilateral. Um, kind of like a, I think that's how a lot of the AI regulation has come. And again, it's kind of, as I alluded to, I think they all support and reinforce one another and they're all useful. And there's a, there's a utility to promoting transparency and to demonstrating what a, a country has kind of committed itself to. But I think a bilateral would make the most sense for one of those, whether it's between, you know, the U.S. and China, U.S. and Russia or other states that are, again, pursuing these systems. They don't it doesn't seem like it's there yet, but it seems like it's in the realm of possibility, very similar to the kind of maybe a joint statement that might that nuclear weapon states might commit to about always keeping a human in the loop for any kind of nuclear decision making, I think could be very valuable. So basically the relevant players Again, these kinds of things haven't emerged yet, but would love, but would love to see them. Um, of course, uh, I, I'm again a little bit more hopeful now that military to military and other sorts of ongoing conversations with the PRC have restarted. But, but again, it's a very, it's a, it's. I acknowledge that it's quite a lofty ask at this stage in time. Lauren, for someone like you, for a, a watcher or researcher of AI or autonomous weapon regulation and and governance, what is the next thing on your calendar? What's the next summit? What's the next potential declaration coming out that that you're keeping an eye on? Oh, great question. Uh, There's so much these days. I feel that like every, especially like last November, I felt that there was an AI declaration or an AI statement or a big AI summit happening every five minutes, right? I expect there to be some upcoming conversations from the United Nations, given that they had a resolution a call for for input on lethal autonomous weapon systems from states. I'm not sure when that's set to come out, but I'm also looking forward to that second REAIM summit that's set to come out in um, South Korea um, as a follow-on. I would love to see if there's some kind of status update, for example, on the convenings that have been happening on the political declaration, or if there's other, I know that there's efforts ongoing from the Netherlands and led by South Korea as well. Also, similarly, on responsible and military systems and TEVV and things like that. So I'm hoping that that will be a a good summit or conference to watch. I think that's supposed to happen in the fall of this year, Um, maybe sometime at the end of like September or October. I'm not quite sure. But I I will be looking to that because I'm hoping that will be a a key time to announce some of the most recent developments um, and big kind of steps that have been happening. At least that's what I'm hoping for. Well, Whenever those happen, I hope that you will uh, consider coming back on to help us make sense of it all. So thank you for keeping an eye on it all. And and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>